welcome to the anniversary edition of Conversations with Passion. On the show today, we'll be featuring clips from various guests we've had on our show, including Jack Canfield, David Suzuki, T. Harp Ecker, Shailene Johnson, Rick Hansen, Tom Ziegler, and you'll hear Dave Carroll's hit song, All Manner of Crazy, a segment from John Dunsworth, and so much more. But first, here is your host, Corey Poirier. Well, well, welcome to the special anniversary edition of Conversations with Passion Radio. I'm Corey Poirier, your host. Very humbled to be celebrating our anniversary. Also very excited. Uh, I remember a while back, me and uh, a fellow co-host were uh, uh, running a show uh, a number of years back, and we had our anniversary special, and I remember us singing, you say it's your birthday, ding, 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 it's my birthday too yeah and that's kind of how i i feel today it's just it's really exciting uh you know it hardly seems like it's a year but at the same time the amount of content that we've run in a year just it's staggering uh which is why i didn't actually call this a greatest hit show because to be honest uh, i couldn't have actually I mean, you're talking literally uh you know almost 50 hours of interviews and content there's no way i could actually say this is the greatest hits thing this is the greatest hits thing i mean there were too many greatest hits if you will in fact i would say almost everything was a greatest hit so uh, instead this is simply the anniversary special where we took uh, some of the highlights of the past year uh really close to uh to home for me uh, we have a clip from nathan mcintosh uh one of my uh, fellow comics and i've been off the stage for quite a while so uh very cool to have nathan sharing some comedy and uh it's funny i, I performed myself for seven years but you think that if i were going to stop comedy it would have been after that first night when the uh the mic uh, wasn't on and i was telling my first joke and thought it was on and of course you'll hear a bit of a story about that in, in this episode as well uh so you know too many things to mention off the uh, off the top but one thing i hope you notice with this episode is that all of our guests are the authentic versions of themselves and i think that's a powerful takeaway i'll talk about the takeaways at the end but i think that is a powerful takeaway to kick things off uh, i think you have to be you and you have to be who you are and you can't be afraid to show who you are uh, for instance yesterday I uh, a friend called me up and asked me if I could come over and, and help them install uh, something in their house and I didn't know what it was and uh, I got over there and it turned out to be a stripper pole so, you know, I don't mind sharing that because, you know what, I was kind of happy that I actually was able to figure it out because I'm the guy that normally reads the instructions and, and finally gives up after an hour, and I installed the thing, I would say, in less than a half hour. So, hey, kudos to me. Uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. So many takeaways. I'm so pumped. I hope you guys are pumped, and uh, we will catch you soon. I hope you live it with passion as you listen to this episode and after the episode's done. And I even hope you share the episode out. I hope you uh, decide to uh, go to the main page conversationswithpassion.com uh, enter your email address there and we'll be able to keep you in the loop of the new podcast we're launching and uh, also upcoming episodes and some amazing guests first up on the show jack canfield Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Conversations with Passion show today. So, Jack, I mean, I, I'm always curious about uh, whenever somebody like yourself, who, who obviously you talked about it, values the power of personal and professional development and, and keeping feeding your brain. So I'm always curious uh, in that kind of respect, who inspires you? And at the same time, what are, if you say to anybody the top strategies for feeding their brain, so in other words, do you – have um, yourself, do you have like a learning plan that you follow or is it, uh, is it just holistic? So I guess my, it's a two-part question, but who inspires you these days and what are your strategies to, if, that you would pass to somebody for how they can feed their brain? Well, I've always been inspired by people who take on huge challenges. So whether it's uh, Nelson Mandela in Africa trying to get rid of apartheid or Mother Teresa in India feeding the homeless with, you know, being, uh, you know, celibate and having vow poverty or uh, Barack Obama taking on the medical system in America or uh, I, one of the guys I met recently was from Sri Lanka. His name's A.T. Ariadne. And um, he's actually transformed 15,000 villages. He's kind of like the modern-day Gandhi. Um, so people that that do huge things, Oprah starting the OWN Network right now, I mean, I'm just so inspired by her willingness to just do something that's so complicated and so challenging and to not give up in the face of so much um, 
you know, resistance. As far as people that I listen to and read books, I mean, all the usual suspects, whether it's Tony Robbins, we talked about Dan Sullivan, Brian Tracy, um, you know, uh, I just go to any good catalog of, you know, Nightingale Conant tapes, whatever. Uh, there's always new stuff coming out. And, and I tend to read, uh, you know, every day. I, I have this thing I call the hour of power. And I teach this in my seminars. I live it in my life. So if we're to take one hour a day and for 20 minutes read something inspirational, uplifting, empowering, or educational, and then meditate for 20 minutes a day so that you integrate all of this information and you tap into what I call source energy. Some people call it God, infinite intelligence, uh, universal intelligence, and then to exercise for a minimum of 20 minutes a day because we now know that exercise keeps the brain healthy and keeps you energized and motivated. So, you know, everyone in North America is watching three to six hours of television a day. And if you cut out one hour of television a day, this is what my mentor, W. Clement Stone, taught me, that's 365 hours a year for education, meditation, and exercise. Um, that's over, what's that, 365 by 40. That's nine and a half work weeks. That's like taking two months and devoting it to education and health and inner peace. And if you do that, you know, people always say, well, what's your secret of success? I said if I had one, it would be that I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly meditating. So I'm learning from outside through books and audio programs. I'm learning from inside to be taught inwardly. The word intuition, we pay tuition at school, but we have a tuition that we pay inside and we get intuitive guidance. That, you know, the, the, the title for Chicken Soup for the Soul came to me through meditation. The desire to start the Transformational Learning, Ship, uh, Learning Council, uh, Leadership Council, rather, which is now an organization of over 150 people that do this work, that meet twice a year, came through meditation. Uh, products come through meditation, ideas for new seminars. So those two things, uh, outward education, inward education through meditation, uh, is how I tend to feed my brain. Well, very profound. I, I can attest to the fact that my first book that I, I finished was actually Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends, and that book transformed my life, and that kind of started the hunger for learning and reading. And, and I can say from experience that adding that amount of time in for me each day, like the amount of time that I dedicate to learning, had transformed my whole life. So it's what you just said there can be transformational for a person. And it's hard to believe an hour a day could do that, but I can speak from experience and say living on both sides of the coin that it totally can. You know, I was so over in Italy about I was over in Italy about a year ago doing a seminar in a town called Firenze, which is near Florence. And um I uh was working with um 2,000 business people. This guy put together a, a consortium of 50 companies, and they would each bring like 40 people, and then they could afford to bring in me and Tony Robbins and John Maxwell and so forth. And um, I asked him how he got into all this, and he said he started out in this company working in, this, in the mailroom, and he started reading every day. And, and to this day, I mean, he picked me up in a Mercedes. He had a, he had a desk a fold-down desk built into the back of his Mercedes limo where he reads books. And he said, I read for two to three hours a day, every day. And he went from being in the mailroom to owning the company in 15 years. And now he owns five companies. And he's probably the you know Donald Trump of that area in terms of his influence in the business world. And it all came from reading and listening to audio programs that are transformative, educational, and empowering. Rapid Fire with T. Harv Ecker. Well, I would say to all the listeners and readers, here's the, the three words you want to you wanna say. I want to say that. Look for problems. Here's what everybody else does. They all look for opportunities. They say, okay, well, that, it, cause it, it, you know, it's opposite of what we think. It, it's, it's, you know, it's crazy. Like, Harv says, don't look for opportunities. No, don't look for opportunities. Look for problems. Because on the other side of the problem is your opportunity, okay? If you look for opportunities, what are you going to find? What, what, what determines an opportunity? 
opportunity. You know, our mind doesn't even function like that. Our, why don't you go with your brain instead of against it? Your brain doesn't function on opportunities, but it certainly functions on looking for problems because it's the best thing in the world on the, for that, isn't it? Your brain is a looking for problem machine. That's all it does is look for problems in the world and with this is wrong and that because it's a survival mechanism. So it does that beautifully. So why not use it? Look for problems. Get good at solving a problem for certain groups of people. And on the other side of that is something called money. Next up, we have a clip from Canadian comedian Nathan McIntosh. And his 
mom comes over and goes, don't worry, she goes, don't worry about a kid. I'll catch you another jawbreaker. But what's that? No, this is not a life lesson. With a kid, you just don't get your stuff back in life. Want to walk over to him and just be like, wow, kid, you dropped your jawbreaker, huh? Wow, that is a rough day, dude. day, though, that's coming up for you, kid. Uh, one day, you're going to open up your fridge and find out you only have soy sauce. <laughs> that is also a pretty messed up day, okay? And no amount of crying is going to fill your fridge, alright? Oh, my crayons are broken. Do you not pay rent, kid? Shut up right now, alright? I would love to have broken crayons at the first of the month. That would be the best, man. The super just knocks on your door like Nathan, your rent's due. But my crayons! My crayons are broken! How can I possibly... Oh, the whole box? I didn't know, dude. Two-week extension. Don't even worry about it. Up next, from Dave Carroll, All Manner of Crazy.
Lorraine Pryor is a director, producer, actor, stand-up comedian, educator, activist, dynamic speaker, mother, and led a successful season as artistic director of the Strand Theater in Baltimore, Maryland. Daughter of the late, great Richard Pryor, Rain has certainly made a name for herself in the theater, stand-up comedy, and music industries. Here is a conversation with Rain Pryor. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Conversations with Passion radio show. And perhaps Yay. what I'll do, <laughs> awesome, it's, I, I've been looking forward to this interview for, uh, for quite a few days now, so really excited to have you on board, and, uh, and to perhaps uh, get you to share some of your insight on passion and, and why you've uh, followed your passions throughout the years and, and what those passions are and all that kind of great stuff. But perhaps I'll, I'll get you to start by sharing a bit about your background for some of our listeners who may, uh, may or may not know your background. Perhaps we'll start there if that works for you okay yeah that's fine so my 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 background is both of my my dad was an iconic comedian Richard Pryor my mom um is a brilliant woman who was a dancer then became a stand-up comedian then became a clown in the circus and now is an astronomer she's brilliant literally brilliant (laughs) Uh, wow and and so I grew up in this entertainment family my grandfather Herbert Bonus was also the manager for Danny Kaye for 35 years. So I grew up in an entertainment family in Los Angeles, and kind of that's what I was surrounded around, like no doctors or lawyers. So I didn't have a passion really for anything else other than performance. Um, And they encouraged me. They kind of enveloped me. And and the schools I went to at the time, different than they are now, kind of enhanced that aspect. So – Although you were learning your English, you know, your teachers were very animated, and so everything was very theatrical, and that was the world, and so it became my my desire. I also grew up black and Jewish, which was an interesting combination, especially in the era that I grew up in, because there weren't a lot of kids like me back then. You know, I was Absolutely. born about four years after the legalization of of inter interracial marriages. So wow. that's a little bit of my background. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so you definitely have a unique background to draw from. <laughs> there's, Absolutely. there's no question that, you know, we, we've uh, we've been doing the show now for, uh, well, about a half a year, but that translates into close to, believe it or not, uh, 75 interviews because we have uh, some shows, multiple guests on the show, and I have <laughs> I haven't heard that background yet, so uh, definitely. <laughs> Awesome. So you said something really cool there, and I didn't even expect to ask about that, but now I have to. Um, you mentioned about the schools uh, encouraging and, and enhancing that whole idea of following your passion. And obviously I'm a big believer in the importance of passion. And one of my, uh, one of the things I've been known to say is that whenever I went through school and probably just the school system I was in, not only did they not encourage it, they actually dis- discouraged it. They said, you know, you're good at that area since you love it and, and what have you. So why don't you focus on all the areas you're weak on and ignore that area? Um, so do you think it's important? It, it, isn't I, that crazy? I actually, do, I actually do think it's important, I, and I'll tell you what. When I, I came to live in Baltimore, Maryland about six years ago, I actually uh, thought maybe I shouldn't act anymore. I should just have kind of like a normal life and maybe act when I want to, and I decided actually to design the way I wanted to live my life. And so Baltimore, I went to go teach for a little bit, and that's when I realized how messed up at least the school system was in Baltimore in terms of the arts. And I watched kids in my class transform because of the arts. And so to me, when you eliminate arts, creates culture in our school, and it creates a sense, I mean, you're, you're learning interpersonal skills. It also creates a sense of community because it takes a village to create a performance. It takes, um, even and if it's visual art, it, you might be the individual artist, but it takes someone to help curate that for the kids. And so it creates this sense of, of community, even music-wise. It creates a sense of musical culture. You're learning music from all over the place, not just classical, but you're, you're going to be introduced to, to jazz, contemporary, you know, all sorts of things. And so I really feel, to me, that art is something that should be actually supported for, because it enhances the other subjects. And when teachers get involved artistically in their work and even the way that they teach, it inspires kids to want to be there and to learn. And we've kind of stripped that away from them right now. And so I actually created a nonprofit called Baltimore Theater Works 
that actually goes into the schools and creates a theater culture within the school. Wow. So that kids get introduced and, to what that is. And it's also a way, too, that I also get to keep following the passion, keep following that desire and inspire others maybe to find their own passion with design, you know, which takes a, an eye for, for, for architectural design and, 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 again, dealing with mathematics and numbers. So it's, it's all inclusive in acting. You know, you incorporate history. So it, it really is all inspiring and inclusive. No, that's that's a great point, and and so you sort of just answered my my next question, which was again continuing on that path I didn't intend to go on, uh, which is what I love about uh, conversations in general. But uh, I, I, so I was going to ask you, what do you think some of the solution may be? But I think you maybe you've sort of answered that in terms of if if the school system isn't necessarily uh, making it happen as a, as an individual person who loves the arts, perhaps a person could consider doing something like you did in a different area. Is that safe to I say? That's or? what we should do. I mean, you know, when, when you talk about it, your your thing, your show is about passion and following your passion. I think that we all have the ability to take what we are passionate about and design it to work for us. Because I'm a, I'm a believer in following your destiny, and I've always been that way. And I think when you follow your destiny, the other pieces fall into place. When you eliminate. Your, because when you do things out of desperation, it's like if you grab that job because you need that job and, you know, everyone needs to make money to pay rent and put food on the table, when you act from a place of desperation, you cut yourself off from your passion and that, that's which you were meant to do. As if you follow your passion and make it work for you, then finance everything soon follows. You know, and my grandfather taught me a great thing because I've also had to take jobs that I did not want to do to put food on the table. But he said, work that job as if you are following your passion. And it's then created the access for me to then go into what it was I loved to do, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Very, very – I mean, that's awesome advice that, you know, I believe that you should give 110% 100%, to whatever you're doing at the time – even, you know, there's times when I've done stuff that I didn't enjoy that much, but I still gave my all because, you know, we're only around for one, one turn around the bend. And if, if I have to do it anyway, why wouldn't I want to smile on my face or why wouldn't I want to be authentically happy while I'm doing it? Right. Right. Absolutely. So I, I have to now. I have to go to the question I have to ask, uh, and I say have to ask because it was it was my next planned question. Not that I have a lot of those, um, but but I my I spent uh, about nine years, and I've been on a hiatus for a couple of years, performing stand-up comedy on an amateur level. And why I bring that up is because you mentioned your iconic father, Richard Pryor. Well, I found it challenging all the way through, always tough to kind of, uh, you know, work with a different crowd, but I didn't have mm-hmm. the, the shadow of a Richard Pryor, um, right. you know, hanging over me. So I'm wondering how tough was it to kind of get out from behind that shadow, or was it tough? I'll tell you, what was tough about it at first for me, having a dad like Richard Pryor and then going into stand-up, it's, first of all, I was tricked into doing stand-up, which I think was brilliant. Um, second of okay. all, I, I realized after putting pressure on myself because he was so great and iconic, I had to think back to the times I went with my dad and my mom when she was doing stand-up and watch them work on their material and not do so great in front of an audience and and how they were allowed the opportunity to kind of grow and hone their craft. And so I took the pressure off of myself to say that I'm still on my journey of honing my craft. And as soon as I eliminated that from my conscious mind and subconscious mind, I was then able to fall into it without that pressure and realize sometimes I'm not going to do so great. Sometimes I am. And I, and I have to allow myself that opportunity in order to grow in it, you know, and that well, I don't have to be him at all. I mean, I'm not enough. him. I'm not a man. And I'm not a black man, for that matter. I'm a mixed race, you know, Czech <laughs> woman. <laughs> you said something very profound there that I think our listeners can learn a lot from in the sense that, well, two parts to it. First of all, be seeing that, you know, as iconic as he was and, and as, uh, you know, as celebrated as he was for being such an amazing comic, he even had off nights. Corey, one of the best examples of that is in he had a video of Live in Smoke, or Up in Smoke, I think yeah. it's Live in Smoke. And, um, it's one of the best 
times to be able to see him in his newness of his stand-up and his voice because you don't hear a lot of laughter. You hear, a lot of, you hear though, of my dad exploring his humor and exploring his own voice. And I think that's really important. People need to understand that. Like what you see on the HBO special is almost a year and a half or two years of these guys going into clubs after club, working on material, bombing, some of it not working, some of them keeping it, then expanding that bit. Like it really is a craft and a skill, and it takes work. Yeah, I have so many people that I talk to that I know their belief is is that most comics they see just walk up on stage and deliver 45 right. minutes of TV-ready material every night. And, it's, and some right. of them even believe it's brand-new material every night. Like it just kind right. of blows my mind. Um, so the second part of that question I said that I had to, to dive into was, you, like I said, you gave a couple of great insights, and the first one was that no matter who the person is, uh, it took a lot of time to make it look like no work was involved. So my second right. part to that question is how important is it as a performer? And I believe our listeners can apply this to their lives, business, whether they want to become a performer, but how important is it to be allowed to or allow yourself to fail on your way to success? As a performer, let's say, I mean, I, every performance is perfect, I, right? I, I think you, I think you have to fail. I think you, and I wouldn't even call it failing. I think failing is such a derogatory mind, mental mind game that we play with ourselves. I think you have to learn, and you don't always get it right, you know. And I, I learned so much. First of all, I'm a mom, so I learned so much from my five year old, and I watch her frustration not being able to get a word right away or read something right away. Like she's in the process of learning how to read. And I watch her frustration, and I have to think of myself as a five-year-old every time, whether I'm on stage performing my solo show, whether I'm doing stand-up, whether I'm creating for Baltimore Theater Works, whether I'm directing or writing, that it, there are hit and misses, and you get to learn from that. You know, just like in relationships, you learn how to evolve in your relationships with people over time. And so if you don't, if you look at life as, okay, it's a challenge to be overcome um, instead of a failure, then I think you have, you have the ability to gain something for yourself, a lesson that you learned and an education for yourself there. Rapid Fire with Rick Hansen. And so for you, how tough was it, Rick? I mean, when you first had the injury, did you, I mean, because some people, of course, um, remain positive uh, throughout. Some people run into challenges of, you know, kind of going through that motion of, oh my, how am I going to go on? Uh, what, what, did, what first happened with you when, that, when it first happened? Like, were you positive right from the outset, or what was your experience? My, my experience when I first had my injury is that my, my, my whole life uh, had been uh, ripped away from me. Uh, and all my hopes and dreams have been shattered uh, along with my spine. It was a devastating, uh, bleak and dark period. I was, uh, you know, I was in a uh, obvious uh, depression. Uh, I was angry. Uh, I was uh, really frustrated at uh, not being able to bring back the use of my legs, in spite of everything uh, that I tried to do. And and ultimately, I was right on the verge of perhaps giving up uh, hope and about seeing anything possible in my life and until I was obviously surrounded then by role models of other people who had been there before who came into my life and showed me that in spite of the fact that I couldn't use my legs, I could still be all of the person that I was and wished to be. I just had to adjust my attitude and stop focusing on the things that I couldn't do and start to focus on, on doing things a little differently but still expressing the, the fact that I was still someone who loved the outdoors, loved to fish, loved to go camping, and uh, and obviously loved sport. And, and so uh, once, I, once I started seeing that possibility, uh, then I started to re-engage uh, at first awkwardly, nervously, uh, and, and then slowly realized that, wow, after my first fishing experience, that it was, I was back in motion again and living life. And then I went back to school and, and ultimately went to university and uh, got a degree and became a world champion in wheelchair sport. Uh, in marathoning and uh, and track, and went to the Olympic and Paralympic Games and represented my country. And who would have ever imagined lying in the hospital bed uh, during those dark days that 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 would have unfolded? And 
then ultimately through that sense of gratitude of how many people had encouraged me, my family, friends, the medical profession, community leaders, role models, that without without them there's no way that I would have been able to have accomplished those goals and I wanted to be like them and, and reach back and help others and that's what spawned the Man in Motion World Tour and my lifelong mission then to become someone who wants to make a difference and pay it forward. What is the world coming to? There are a few people I know who are involved in the foreign exchange program. Kids come from other countries like China, Colombia, Mexico, Holland, etc. Ideally, they come here to help them develop their command of the English language. I can imagine, based on what I'm hearing about the school system, that they are not learning English through academic means, but more so as a process of immersion where they would have conversations with classmates, teachers, on excursions and other events. A common factor seems to be that the level of studies in the schools in Nova Scotia are way behind those of other countries. A 12-year-old boy from China remarked that the mathematics he was studying in school at the grade 6 level in Nova Scotia was the same mathematics he studied in grade 2 in China. I've had conversations with other exchange students as my brother-in-law participates in the program, and I see these students when we visit, and they also attend some family events and so on. This variance in educational levels is consistently echoed by the other students with whom I speak. Now here's where it gets interesting. In recent conversations with parents of children in the Halifax school system, I've learned that the schools no longer correct spelling. In addition, I've heard that they will no longer be teaching long division, but leaving it up to the kids to figure out their own methods. When one parent inquired as to why this was going to be so, the response they received was that the schools were going to be focused on the children's emotional development, to which this parent replied, um, that's my job. Your job is to educate. Now, I've studied advanced learning techniques, and I've learned some crucial elements about how various mental states can affect the ability to learn. So I could see where the school systems are making some changes to try and evoke the right mental state. A resourceful state of mind is key for learning, and the child is stressed that could negatively impact their ability to learn. However, getting the children into the right emotional state, while important, is only half the battle. They'll still need to focus on the actual education. But sadly, this is not happening. Children are being pushed through to the next grade with no base on merit and ability. Kids are graduating from high school so ill-prepared to deal with learning at the college level that universities are required to create remedial math and English classes. I had a conversation with a school principal with whom I was meeting for business purposes where she commented that her 18-year-old daughter could not read and write very well. I couldn't say anything, but the dialogue in my mind was, you have got to be kidding me. A factor here that, that I consider is there are children in foreign-speaking countries that are learning English at a far more greater advanced level than children here where English is their language. I have a little boy, he's almost three, and another little boy due to enter the world in about four weeks. I'm very concerned and seriously considering private school. It would either be that or I'd be spending two hours a night with my son to make sure he is getting the education he's supposed to be getting at school. And I know there's some families out there where the parents don't have that time or ability to sit down with their kids and do that. But what is the world coming to when we've taken education out of schools? Has the pendulum swung so far the other way? How are we going to be able to compete on the world stage between now and the next 10 years when we're basically raising a generation of fools who will be competing in competition for jobs with people from other countries who will be so far ahead of them. If I do decide to put my children into public school, I can tell you now that the gloves will be coming off, and I will be fighting, albeit diplomatically and politically, but fighting for the rights of my children to a decent education. Even if that means he might be staying down a grade an extra year because he didn't pay enough attention in class to get it right the first time. And now, a moment in time... With John Dunsworth. Ellen Page. When Ellen Page was nominated for an Academy Award, I got a flurry of calls from the media. It seems that I was getting some credit for discovering her by casting her in The Pit Pony, a film shot in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. While it's true I was the casting director, I had little to do with her debut in motion pictures. She was at the time a student at Halifax Grammar School, and it just so happens that she was under the tutelage of Gay Hauser. 
Gay is an actress who, like me and many others, occupied herself in any area of the arts while waiting for roles in plays at Neptune Theatre or the scant opportunities in a fledgling film industry. In my search for child actors for Pit Pony, I called Gay and asked if she had any promising students in her drama class. Yes, indeed, she replied and mentioned Ellen. The school would be presenting the Chocolate Dream Factory and Ellen was playing the lead. Gay said that Ellen had showed up on the second rehearsal without a script and because Gay had exhorted the young cast to work hard since they had little rehearsal time, Ellen had committed her part to memory in super short order. When Ellen came to the audition, Andrew Cochran, he of Theodore Tugboat fame, the producer, and Eric, the director, decided on the spot to cast her. I was a bit flummoxed. She was so quiet and didn't seem to me to be anything special at all. Well, so much for my skills at recognizing rising talent. Of course, on seeing Juno, Ellen's big breakthrough, I finally saw her genius. I might add that she played Jim Leahy's daughter in season three of The Trailer Park Boys. I had little opportunity to assess her performance then, and also in Pit Pony, because I was attempting to practice one of the laws of ensemble performance. Never judge the performance of a fellow actor in the production you're in. It costs. Big time. I remember when I directed Joe Rutten and Anna Cameron in a workshop. Joe confided in me that he thought Anna was just awful. Sure enough, the audience thought she was wonderful and asked why Joe just walked through his part. Joe was a Shakespearean actor who spent a dozen years at Stratford in Canada. I had hired him in 1970 at Pier 1 Theatre in Halifax. I don't remember his on-stage performance, but I remember getting a letter from Canadian Actors' Equity indicating that one of their members had complained that the washroom was too far from the dressing room. Ellen Page is not that kind of actor. She is generous and easy to work with, unassuming and hard-working. I heard her recently on Gian Gameshi. She was using her star status to promote sensible practice in the legislation of environmental law in Canada. She is not only a champion of the arts, but a star in the firmament of selfless philanthropy. Rapid Fire with Shailene Johnson. So, and it solves a problem for me, and I think a lot of times if you solve your own problem, you'll solve um, hundreds, if not thousands or millions of other people's same issues. Did you have any idea at all that it was going to blow up so big? Um, no. You know, to be honest, I, I say no initially. Initially, I knew that certain people would find this workout when I created it in my small gym in Aliso Viejo, California, and people started coming and people started coming. I knew enough people would hear about this workout and that it would solve problems for people. But it wasn't my job at the time. It wasn't certainly paying the bills at the time. It was just solving a problem for me. And I had a conversation with my dad, who, you know, is, is um, an entrepreneur and always has been, and, and he said to me, that is great, honey. That is so exciting. But how do you get everyone across the globe to know about this workout and I was really defensive like well that's not the point how how in the world would I ever do that you know it's really popular here in Aliso Viejo but it stuck and I really thought well he's right I, I do if if I truly believe in this I've got to figure I've got to think strategically I've got to think how do I get this to more people Adventures with Corey Kisses me both cheeks. 
see how they do this in France. So I talked back with this, and I don't know what to do, right? I'm like, dude, what the? I just put it right here. <laughs> you know, you're going to go to all the trouble to kiss me in France. What's that French All right, guys, so here it is, the very first edition of what we've decided to, I guess, aptly call Adventures with Corey. And, uh, you know, by choosing to do it this way, uh, the, the whole Adventures with Corey, it wasn't meant to be uh, about me. It was just meant to uh, uh, talk about some different adventures that uh, we as people have that take us inside our comfort zone. And why that's important is what I've discovered over the years is the more you're willing to go outside your comfort zone, the more you're able to achieve. What I've discovered after talking to a lot of people that have achieved things in their, their lives that they, even they didn't know they'd be able to is that they had to step outside their comfort zone to actually grow their comfort zone to the level it needed to be for them to achieve what they ultimately wanted to achieve. Wow, that's a full mouthful, isn't it? So let's jump right in. I'm going to actually share with you guys a story. Uh, I think it's appropriate that the first Adventures with Corey story will be uh, a first uh, adventure for me uh, into a certain uh, part of my life that I delved into for a number of years, that being the world of stand-up comedy. So as the story goes, back in 2002, I decided to attend a stand-up comedy workshop. And I attended this workshop with 15 other would-be amateur stand-up comics, and essentially it was two weeks of here's how you adjust a mic stand, and uh, Lenny Bruce and or Dane Cook, depending on your comedy uh, choice, uh, rules. So we were basically just told here's how you adjust the mic stand, and here's some of the comics that are awesome. And so that was our training to get into stand-up comedy. Now, you've probably heard that the number one fear in the world above death is public speaking, and I would have to say the stand-up comedy is a few levels above that. So, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, I've heard him say the joke that uh, what that means in terms of uh, the number one fear in the world being public speaking, even above death, is that if you were at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Now, again, that's Jerry Seinfeld's joke, so I'm not trying to steal his thunder. Uh, I want to make sure I give him credit for it. But the point is, is that performing stand-up comedy is definitely uh, high on the fear scale. So here we are, the 15 amateur stand-up comics. All our training has been surrounded by, here's how you adjust the mic stand, and once again, uh, this comic or that comic rules. So what happened is that our third week of training, we were supposed to go watch these entertainers at a local club uh, entertain us. So we get to the club. Ten minutes to show time, we look at our the guy who's brought us into this whole world of stand-up comedy and say, hey, guy, which was his name, but hey, guy, you know, where are the entertainers? So he took a breath and he looked at us and said, guys, you're looking at them. So what we found out at that exact moment after two weeks of training as to how to become a stand-up comic is we were actually the entertainers for the night. Uh, probably some information we could have used the day before so we could have thought about some material that we would use at the show. So all of a sudden now the 15 amateur stand-up comics are deciding who's going to go up first. I find my way to the bathroom and get inside the bathroom looking for the near, nearest exit window. There was no exit window in the bathroom. I come back out and eight of the, uh, the original comics are gone. <laughs> so there's only myself and six other comics remaining. And all of a sudden now we really have to decide who's going up first. So ultimately what happened was as they continued trying to debate who was going to go up first, I decided that, you know what, the only way to conquer a beer is to face it head on. So I go up to the stage and I grab the mic and I told what I consider to be the best joke I've ever told in my life up until that point, to dead silence. After a couple of seconds, the streams of sweat start coming down my face and I realize this stand-up comedy thing is a lot tougher than I thought. So finally, I decided to jump into the second best joke I've ever told in my life. And this time, it was not only dead silence, I could have sworn I saw tumbleweeds going by the stage. Finally, the guy who got us into this mess, a uh, guy's name is Guy Earl, uh, Guy calls me over to the corner of the stage and hits me in the back of the head. And he says, you idiot, we haven't even turned the mic on yet. The lesson that I learned on this adventure with Corey is that uh, if you want to be heard and if you want to be an effective communicator, you need to have your mic turned on. So what the adventure taught me overall is, first of all, you need to uh, make sure you're ready for what you're actually trying. Again, you need to make sure that your mic's 
turned on, whether it's your internal mic or an external mic, uh, if you want to communicate effectively and have people hear you. But secondly, if you want to expand your comfort zone, and this is the most important lesson I learned from that, is you've got to be willing to take a chance at failing. The only way you can ever succeed is to actually learn from your failures and your setbacks. And uh, I will tell you that I went on to perform another 700 times after that stand-up comedy for nine more years. And, uh, you know, tomorrow I might find myself on a, a comedy stage again. And none of that would have happened if I wouldn't have taken a chance to step outside my comfort zone. Perhaps more importantly, this radio show wouldn't exist and my speaking career wouldn't have existed if I had never taken a chance to stand-up comedy because everything sort of evolved from that pivotal point. So what I hope you learn from this is that you need to be willing to step outside your comfort zone if you want to get to that next tier in your life. Rapid Fire with Tom Ziegler. Dad was born in L.A., which means lower Alabama, and uh, people, people would always laugh a little bit. And uh, when he was very young, like four years old, the family moved to Yazoo City, Mississippi. And th at that time, that was the middle of the Great Depression. So in a little town in, in the Mississippi, which was, of course, when we're going through the Great Depression, it was one of the po poorest states in the country at that time. And Dad's father died when Dad was five. So all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's the tenth of 12 kids. He's got six brothers and sisters too young to work. His mom is a single mom, um, fifth grade education. So he's in the middle, you know, in Yazoo City. So the poorest time in the country's history, and he loses his dad. He's five years old. When he was six, he started selling peanuts on the corner uh, because wow. the, fam the family needed the money. So his sales career started when he was six. He went through school. He, ne he never did well in school. In fact, uh, Dad used to say he was in the part of the class that made the top half possible. And uh, he got out of high school. In fact, he took a summer school class so he could graduate a little early. And so that way he could go into the military service early. Uh, and he joined the Navy, and this was the tail end of World War II. And then through the Navy, he never saw combat, but he did go through training. He did get a little bit of college. Uh, and then when he left the Navy because the war was shutting down, uh, he started a sales career. And the first sales company he went to, he worked there for two and a half years selling cookware door to door. And for two and a half years, he didn't sell anything. Well, he did. He sold his car. He sold his furniture. You know, you kind of get the drift of it. And after he'd been there for two, after he'd been there for two and a half years, a gentleman named P.C. Merrill, which was kind of his manager supervisor, they were having a conference. Dad was there. P.C. Merrill came up to him in a break and looked at Dad and and said, "Zig, in all my life, I've never seen such a waste. But I believe you could be a champion if you believed in yourself and went to work on a regular schedule." So Dad had a great deal of respect for him. Uh, he admired P.C. Merrill. He believed him. And that was the day he decided to learn what it meant to believe in yourself and go to work on a regular schedule. So he set a goal. And from that day forward, his goal was to be knocking on somebody's door at 9 a.m. every day because that was going to work on a regular schedule. And that was back in the old days when you could knock on people's doors and they would answer them. <laughs> well, at the at the end of that year, he finished number two out of seven thousand salespeople in that company. Wow! In the previous in the previous two and a half years, he'd never been in the top five thousand. And the only thing that changed was knocking on the door at nine a.m. and believing in himself. Recently, Corey had the honor of sitting down for dinner with Canadian icon and legend who is an award-winning scientist, environmentalist, broadcaster. In addition to a PhD in zoology, he holds 25 honorary degrees in Canada, U.S., and Australia, many awards including four Geminis, and is the author of over 50 books. Corey discusses the nature of things with David Suzuki. You have a naughty little smile on your face. <laughs> well, I was just... 
I, I remember something in passing, and I can't remember if it was yourself that said it or if it was Deanna, but I believe that you don't have a cell phone. Is that correct? Well, actually, I brought my wife's. Okay. Yeah. What I was, don't have a cell phone. Well, I was going to, I was curious about that. It got me interested because you don't hear that in today's age of digital technology. So, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Is it, well, you, you saw what I have to live with now. Yeah. And why would I have a phone so that people could have access to me 24 hours a day? You know, I go to the gym and uh, work out, I, and I see all kinds of people, you know, on the treadmill or whatever, and they're talking on the cell phone. And I think, why? You know, like, for me, uh, have, being able to just be free for my thoughts, I don't need to be interrupted. You know, information is pouring out at me all the time. Well, why I asked about it is because it, it intrigued me in the sense that I do talks on customer service, on uh, the way we work today versus years before, and you see so many people that are fixed on their phones and on their devices all day, every day. So I really, when I heard it, I respected it. I said, wow, i, I got to get there someday. It, you know, part of it is I'm an alien in this new land. Uh, yesterday, I... The last two days I've been hooked up with the NFB. We hooked up to a whole bunch of schools, dozens of schools, so that it, and I could, it was live. They could ask me questions and I could respond. And someone asked me about, you know, do, what do I think of social media? And I said, you know, I know there's something going on there that is really different. Like there's a meta effect, a combination. These kids are communicating in a totally different way and there's something in there. Part of it is that I'm now an alien in this land. I just don't feel it's necessary for me to get involved in, you know, I don't even text messages, right? But um, something is definitely going on. But I think one of the major problems we face now is that the electronics have become a toy, and they're very, very seductive. I remember the first time I went to YouTube, and I wanted a very specific thing. Do you know what a hagfish is? I've heard of it. I don't. So they're this, this amazing creature, you know, and they, they, if you go to the bottom of the ocean and there's a dead whale or something, you'll see it just writhing with these eels that are in eating up. The, these are hagfish. But there's a hagfish fishery, and when you catch one and, and bump the container, they exude a slime that will fill the bucket, like just instantly turn like jello. So I said, gee, you know, I wonder what that's like. So I go on YouTube the first time, and there were dozens of submissions. Four hours later, I said, what the hell's going on? Because, as you know, when you go to YouTube yeah. to see something, it gives you a list of all the other things. And I just got sucked in, and I thought, whoa, this is what these kids are all about, right? Yeah, where do the time go? And, yeah, and it's very entertaining. You've got all this stuff available to you. And, and uh, so I can see if you're into pornography or any of that. I mean, it's endless. But the, what worries me is, what about human beings, like real people? When I see kids walking to school and they've got earbuds on or, or have, the message is very, very clear. Stay the hell out of my, my turf. I'm here, and I don't need you. I'm into my zone, right? And I, I think this is really tragic, because what we need desperately is those human contacts and to play and hang out with, and, but... but the technology is very alienating. It means that, you know, even in our office, someone at one end of the, of the office will email someone at the other end. We don't even bother to get up and go down and say, hey, what, you know, like, what the heck's going on? I, sh I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, I see it every day now. Yeah. And one like of the your world. It is. And one of the things I personally had to do myself, because I got to do into it as well, is I used to have a BlackBerry, and this is what this is the moment it woke me up. Is one day that BlackBerry was buzzing, two in the morning, and I realized I still had this thing on. I never turned the ringer off, and I jumped into bed, and it woke me up, and I ran out and grabbed it, and the message said, "Having trouble sleeping? No. Want to buy this pill? Oh my God! And so it was kind of an epiphany. Yeah, oh yeah, my, yeah. You know, like it yeah. woke me up, and now it's that it's because of spam, of course. Yeah, yeah. So what I did, and, and still this case, the reason you won't hear my phone ring is I have it forwarded to my office, and it's on silence otherwise. So all day, every day, nobody ever can call me, because I do so many talks, speaking-wise. I can't be in with a client talking about the importance of being in the moment and then have my phone ringing. Exactly. So I try to take some of the power back and still use the technology, but it is hard. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of when we have a board meeting, you know, we bring people from across the country, and they come in for a day and a half. 
And it really pisses me off that these guys, I can see them surreptitiously looking under the den. They're checking out their emails, you know, and it's not once and then forget it, but it's like every half hour they're checking their emails. And it's a, it's a really powerful form of addiction. Right? Well, I mean, obviously your life, one of the things that's obviously crucial and important is time management. And what I mean by that yeah. is that you're obviously always on different yeah. schedules. So do you think it actually helps to not have that distraction when it comes to managing your time? Well, it, it helps me in terms of my psychological sanity. But I think also physically, I mean, I think that we need to interact well on my messages. We need to ha- interact with nature. we got to be outside. Um, you know, last summer I took my family and we went for 14 days down the, a river called the Heart River in Yukon. So we're on a raft for 14 days, way the hell, like no cell phone, nothing. And people go, wow, how the hell did you survive? Not, not they're worried about bears or anything. It's how did you survive without emails or phones for 14 days? Man, we're in trouble if, if it's that critical. Well, and you make a great point because when I talk about customer service, people will say to me, you know, we're in a different world today, Corey. We're in an instant communication world to get back to somebody right away. And I said, but my grandfather years ago used to work in the woods in New Brunswick. And if he gets stuck on the side of the road, he still survives. He's still here to tell about it. And, and I said, in some ways, in my opinion, you're actually better as a server, customer service, if you don't have it, because you can then get back to the person with the information they want. Like, let's say they leave you, you a voicemail or call your office or what have you, but rather than you doing this all day. And not only that, I find you're more in the moment with the person sitting in front of you. Uh, exactly. Like, that's to me, whole, it's a win-win. That's the whole point, though. It's, it's, I believe that the thing we need desperately is that human contact with other people and with nature. Absolutely. And the electronics interferes with that. Now, I have to admit, when my daughter went away to, to University of Yale, that's first time I, I saw the email. And it was wonderful because I could communicate with her by email every day. And now that I've got, she's got children and I've got grandchildren up in Haida Gwaii. We Skype all the time. Absolutely. And it, it's fantastic. It, I mean, it goes to a point, I think, if, if you use it right, yeah. it can be very beneficial, but most people aren't using it necessarily right. Exactly. I, I don't know if you know or are familiar with Robin Sharma. He's a guy who wrote a book called The Monk Who Told a Story. And he's a leadership guru. Uh, He's worked with the Dalai Lama on leadership and stuff. And one of the things, when I asked him about these data devices, he said, Corey, I'll put it this way. We only lose, he said, I know people say I gave 150%, but we only really have 100% to give. And he said, if you're giving 50% to your data device, how can you give 100% to the person? Right, right, right. To me, that kind of summed it all up right there. So that's just, I was curious about that because you don't hear it often, so it made me wonder. The other thing is that people will email me and then they'll call me two hours later and say, I sent you an email, did you get it? Like, what they're saying to me is respond right away. I sent it to you two hours ago. So when I was a kid, in the 1950s, I used to read Popular Mechanics, and um, there would be articles in there, um, the world of 1990 or something, and it was all about technology. There'd be little machines running around and vacuuming the floors, and we'd have little um, gyro, uh, they're like helicopters, and fly to work, and the whole issue back then was, what are we going to do with all our time? Because all these machines are going to be doing everything for us, right? Absolutely. So then I look at my home today. It, my home today is what they were predicting, right? I've, I've got computers in every room. I've got TV sets. I've got voicemail. I've got, you know, I've got microwave ovens. And all they do is, in the past, if you called me and you didn't get me, you called me again. Yeah. Now I get home. And these goddamn voicemails, they respond immediately, right? So what it does is it just fills your time. What the hell is all this stuff about? What are we going to do with our spare time? I have no spare time. We're just jamming more and more into that the time we have. Well, guys, there you have it. The anniversary edition of Conversations with Passion. 
takeaways. I almost didn't even want to do a takeaway this time, guys. Just too much content. Great, great insight from the show, uh, some profound messages, and, and it makes it hard to do a takeaway. But also at the same time, I believe in consistency. Uh, and since I've uh, provided takeaways pretty much throughout the entire year, uh, I'd be remiss not to do so right now as well. So just thought I'd highlight three takeaways that, that I actually uh, implemented this year and at the same time that really uh, spoke to me throughout the year. I, I kind of uh, cited them these, uh, these uh, insights uh, multiple times. So the first one was from our conversation with Jack Canfield and the clip we shared here about him talking about the hour of power. Guys, I really believe if you try to use the hour of power, uh, you know, try for 21 days long enough to create a habit, I think you guys would be blown away at the impact it can have on your life. I know personally for myself, it was one of the big difference makers. Uh, second takeaway for me when we talked to Dr. David Suzuki and kicked the, the conversation off talking about him not having a cell phone and why he doesn't. And I just believe our conversation really focused on and centered around the importance of and power of uh, being in the now and, and building personal connections. And I believe as we go forward with a, a world filled with uh, technology where most people find it easier just to send an email or send a message or uh, keep things uh, on the digital capacity, which obviously is a little less personal. I think the people that are making it personal are the ones that are going to thrive. Uh, you know, I think uh, serving your clients uh, in a personal way is actually going to be the difference maker going forward. I believe it's going to be the game changer. So uh, I just think that was a powerful message from that conversation. And finally, with uh, our conversation with Rick Hansen, uh, Rick is such an inspirational guy. I just thought it was so cool uh, for him to share with us the, the fact that uh, you know, what, what it took for him to uh, get himself to a place where he was able to achieve at the highest level and maybe move away from a place where he thought that wouldn't be possible. So I just thought it was important for us to hear that message, you know, when most of us probably think he was just automatically born inspired and ready to take on the world and that that stayed with him forever and he's never had a, a doubt or a negative moment. I think it's important for us sometimes to know that uh, a lot of us start at that lowest point or hit that lowest point and we have to come back out of it. So guys, again, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm pumped that you've been here for a year listening to the show. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much uh, on behalf of myself and our producer, Marco Kelly, and I look forward to the next and future coming years. So guys, uh, I will talk to you next time. And once again, live with passion. Well, we hope you enjoyed our anniversary show. It was great looking back and listening to a few of our outstanding guests. Obviously, we couldn't put all of our outstanding guests on the show, as the show would easily have run for a full day or two. But you can check out all of our previous shows in our archive on Blog Talk Radio. As always, go to conversationswithpassion.com to sign up for email updates or to learn more about the show. And go to coreyporier.com to learn more about Corey and how he can help you and your team get to the next level in your vision. We'd like to thank the following friends of CWP. Ramona Pater, go to RamonaSellsRealEstate.com. Margaret Yell, go to MargaretGalMortgages.ca. True Vista Accounting, go to TrueVistaAccounting.com. Spa Chappelle, go to SpaChapelle.ca. Smile Dog Remote Reception, go to SmileDog.ca. And Permadry, go to Permadry.com. From all of us at Conversations with Passion, have a safe and wonderful holiday season filled with joy and passion. On behalf of Corey Poirier, I am Marco Kelly, and this has been the anniversary edition of Conversations with Passion. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.